0: Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm talking to Aline Moore. Aline is a writer living in Philadelphia. Her book, How Blood Works, won the 2020 Stan and Tom Wick Poetry Prize and will be published by Kent State University Press later this year. Aline's poetry, lyric nonfiction, and critical work has appeared in Hayden's Fairy Review, Best New Poets, West Branch, Poetry Northwest, Brevity, and elsewhere. Today, Aline joins me to talk about why Bitter Blue, a YA fantasy by Christian Kishore, is the best book ever. If you're looking for an easy way to support this podcast and indie bookstores, why not do me a solid and buy your books using my affiliate link at bookshop.org, an online bookshop with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. All of the links in my show notes will take you to bookshop. Or if you want to just go browse on your own, go to bookshop.org bestbookever ever. I'll get a small percentage from your purchase at no extra expense to you, and you'll have the satisfaction of helping to keep our beloved indie bookstores in business. Thank you for supporting my work and indie bookstores. Now, back to the show. Hi, Aline. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Aline, listen. Books are the most important thing in the world. We all know that's true. But I'm (laughs) going to ask you about the second most important thing in the world, which is pie. Mainly because you wrote in your podcast application that you make a great pie. So we're going to start there. We do. (laughs) Give
1: give me your go-to pie recipe. Well, my go-to pie recipe is a blackberry pie with dried unsweetened dried cranberries that rehydrate when you bake it so they become plump and juicy but also draw in some of the liquid that the blackberries release and then my very favorite thing to do with this pie and a few other pies is to line the bottom of the crust so between the crust and the filling with flattened marzipan and it's it's so good
0: (laughs) so unsweetened cranberries those are hard to find though aren't they
1: you can often find them at like Whole Foods or local groceries and co-ops and things. But if okay. you do, if you want to make this and you can only find sweetened dried cranberries, just cut the sugar to taste.
0: Oh my God, that sounds so
1: good. It is and so is it <laughs> do you do half half? No, usually I will do I will do the expected amount of blackberries for the filling and then I'll throw in half a cup to three-quarter cups of the cranberries. They're just this extra little burst of something unexpected.
0: Of tartness. And the marzipan is a brilliant idea. I'm thinking how good that would be in an apple pie.
1: Yes. And peach pie is something I do it with. It's great. Oh my gosh.
0: Okay. Well, back to the real most important thing in the world. Um, I'm thrilled that you're here to talk about this book, which is Yet again, a book that I never would have picked up on my own, and I'm delighted to get to talk to you about it. But can we start
1: with the role that reading plays in your life? Yeah, well, um, I think on a professional level, as a writer, reading is sort of a critical endeavor, not just to understand the craft of it, um, but also to put things into the well. So you have to keep replenishing as much as you can. And I sort of, you know, I write mostly poetry and essays, but um, I think that you can learn something about all genres from all genres. So, um, yeah, I try to read as widely as I possibly can. But on a personal level, I think, you know, it's sort of one of the most foundational pleasures of life to be able to transport yourself through language. And, uh, and the more we can all share in that experience, I think, the better. How did you get to poetry?
0: Because I have found so many readers and writers who feel a fear of poetry. They think it's hard. Um, and so I'm always interested, was it a teacher, just, just the exact right teacher who got you to the exact right poem? Or how did you discover that?
1: I think I recall writing what at the time I thought of as poems, but I might now call verses. I remember writing things like this from a pretty young age, and I was almost always trying to emulate uh, something I had read, like Shel Silverstein was somebody I loved as a child, Ogden Nash, A.A. Um, a. Milne's poems. And I think that when people think of poetry who are not writers of poetry, they often think of that kind of poetry, the the light verses, the rhyming, the playfulness of it, and, and make the mistake, I think, of uh, writing it off as sort of light and unserious. But actually, I think that that, kind of writing is a very serious endeavor because it gets to the heart of something really important about language which is the playfulness and the chime of the sound of it and you know how it hits your ear and how it feels to say it and so I think that I was drawn into poetry for the joy of those things um you know, and so the, and that was what I loved writing as a child, figuring out rhymes and realizing that there was a mathematics to it if you wanted there to be. Mm. Um, yeah, and and so, you know, as I think that as writers mature in their craft, they learn about lots of other tools as well. Um, but I think that's where I started with just the the pleasure of the sound of poetry.
0: In my head, I have a very reductive sort of spectrum of writers, and it is completely wrong. And I'm aware that it's wrong. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think of writers, I think of poets on this end and fantasy writers on this end, because I think poets are all about shaving it down to the precise right word as, as, um, they're as parsimonious with words as you can be. And then I think about fantasy writers and I think of them as sort of the opposite. They they are so expansive with mm. their language and their, their, their storytelling. And I know that is not correct, by the way. Um, I know that fantasy writers are just as careful about their word choices. But I would love to know, are you a big fantasy reader in general, first of all?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. So, um, and specifically YA fantasy. But uh, but yes, in general, I would say the bulk of my reading in my life has been in fantasy.
0: So as a poet, as someone who is so focused on the, the precision of words and language, tell me what it is that you like so much about fantasy.
1: Well, I think that... I think that there's a particular kind of contract between the fantasy writer and the fantasy reader that we are together entering into something that was not there before we started. Um, And and, and just, you know, certainly there are differences between poetry and fantasy novels, but I think that then as a writer approaching the craft of writing poetry, that's a consideration. What is the contract between this work and whoever may be reading it and what is being built that wasn't there before. Um so I I I don't think I don't think that it's such a polar opposite interest that I enjoy fantasy <laughs> for that uh-huh. reason. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And I'll also, you know, I'll point out that uh, a few years ago, Jane Yolen, who was, when I was a kid, she was huge in children's fantasy. And I suspect that she is still venerated in the the genre, but she published a book in verse on Baba Yaga, Mm. the the fabled witch of Russian and Eastern European uh, mythology. So presumably poetry has its uses even in the world of fantasy
0: mm-hmm. I have really been surprised in the year and a half that I've been doing this podcast how much crossover there is I never would have guessed that because in my very simplistic placement of what people like I've always sort of and it's just not true at all I yeah i find i think i have a suspicion i don't know i'm gonna do a poll or something i think poets like fantasy and fantasy writers like poetry more than everyone else (laughs) (laughs) i I, there's some sort of connection between the two genres that i just think is fantasy this uh fascinating to me yeah so tell me how did you find this book that we're discussing today bitter blue
1: Well, I, this is the third book in a series, although I think that they stand on their own as standalone books. Um, So I first read the first one in the series and I came to that book because I had just been rereading one of my other very favorite um, young adult fantasy books series and I was craving more waiting for the next book to come out and I had read on a forum that um, oh, in this other fantasy series there's a character that's very similar to a beloved character. And so I looked it up and um, that book Graceling, introduces us to two characters that we see in Bitter blue, Katsa and Poe. and it's it's sort of their story. Um, so some of the things that you learn about them in Bitter blue, you have a foundation for if you read that first book. So I read that and I loved it. The second book was not available for my library. So I went straight to bitter blue and, and I realized that, that I was dealing with something very different here than with a sort of the simple adventure story that was Graceling the first one. Um, and, 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 I, and this was as an adult, by the way, that I was rereading and reading these books. Um, so yeah, I picked it up and I just I mean it it was quite an quite an experience. And some of I've now gone back and read the second book. Some of the mysteries that are hinted at in Bitter Blue can be answered if you read the second book and I'm so grateful that I hadn't yet because I realize now that in a lot of ways i had some of the same experiences with the story that the main character bitter blue has where she's trying to puzzle things out and i was sort of there with her trying to puzzle things out and it was it was a very unique experience reading this book
0: that's a really bold choice for the author to have left those mysteries without trying to wrap it up neatly for someone who may pick up bitter blue first
1: yeah i think it it must be intentional. Having mm. read more of this author's work, it, it must be intentional. And I think that one reason I keep coming back to this book is the fact that um, this confusion and decentering that Bitterblue Blue experiences is not ever completely resolved. And there was something so comforting in that to know that, There can be huge swaths of memory and experience that don't make sense and don't seem to um, fit into, particularly from childhood, that don't seem to fit into what you hope to build as an adult. And that uh, that confusion is okay; (laughs) that it doesn't have to tie up neatly. You just sort of have to contend with it and then move forward. Can
0: you describe the plot of this for my listeners who haven't come across it? You, you, you're the one who knows um, YA fantasy, but you said yourself that you think she's a criminally underrated author in your oh, yes. first note to me. So I have a feeling this is not even fantasy uh, readers maybe haven't come across this one.
1: Is that your impression? It is my impression. Um, I mean, I think that the following that it has is a very uh, loyal following, but um, I haven't seen it really. Uh, I haven't seen it discussed more widely. Um, so yes, I would love. I would love to give a, a summary of the book. So the book takes place in one of seven kingdoms in this fantasy world, and the kingdom has just come out of a A multiple decade reign of terror um the offending king king leck was the main character's father and he had an ability in a in a world where some people have fantastical strange abilities he had an ability which was uh the ability to speak words to people and have them become truth. So he could alter people's perception of reality. He could tell a story and it would become reality. Um, and so he used this ability with his own sick, sadistic whims to just sort of take over this kingdom and um, and keep it in a fog for 30, 40 years. And, um, and so bitter blue as a young girl was saved from that experience. Her father is killed. And now as an 18-year-old queen, we are joining her her in her journey to make sense of what happened to her, to make sense of what is still happening in her kingdom, to puzzle together all of the things that People won't tell her, don't want to tell her, don't want to remember themselves about the atrocities committed during her father's reign, and ultimately find a way to help her country heal and become the leader that she wants to be.
0: I was stunned. I did not look at the copyright date um, until after I had read it. My first reaction was, oh, this book was written in response to what we have just gone through as a country where we are debating the very nature of what is true yeah which i still can't quite get my head around that we're talking about that <laughs> and then i looked at it and saw that it was written in 2012 which stunned me because yeah. it felt so immediately real
1: yes yeah that's an interesting point um and i i had read it before um, the last four years. I think it's interesting that some of what we experienced on a national level, this, um, you know, uh, disagreement, I guess, over what the truth is over what words mean over what stories are going to be disseminated and what stories are going to be suppressed. That it, it 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 ha- it was enacted on a national level, on a national stage, in our national consciousness, and yet it's also something that many many people experience in their personal lives and think that they're alone in that experience. So, um, yeah, I can see how it would be astonishing to look at the date and realize that this this is this is just what it is. It's not a response to mm-hmm. that national theater. It is. I mean, perhaps a response to something that Chris and Kishore had experienced in her own personal life, perhaps not, but certainly something that I think many people do experience. She definitely had the foresight.
0: I mean, I, I certainly hope she didn't experience this kind of emotional trauma, but she definitely has the foresight to understand the way these things, the way trauma goes forward yeah after after a certain event or after a long term event that it doesn't just end which i found fascinating what um
1: may i ask why this book affected you so personally yeah this book came into my life at a time um in my mid 20s which i i think is a turbulent time for a lot of people <laughs> But um, yeah, it came to me at a time when I was really starting to interrogate what my childhood had been, the stories that I had grown up hearing, the things that I had experienced, um, the way that those experiences shaped my worldview. Uh, um, And so, yeah, really, it was at the beginning of my starting to turn towards those memories and experiences and stories with a much more critical eye and, and ask myself what, what is true. And even what do I mean by that question, what is true and how do I take something from my childhood that can serve me and move forward? And so when I, when I read this book, while I was asking myself those questions, I, I I I felt such a kinship with bitter blue and and in particularly in her sort of perennial experience, especially in the first part of the book of feeling like everybody around her is insane, that they are crackpots, that nothing makes sense, that people are behaving in ways that she just can't understand. Um, And, and also her, her self doubt that, that, there might be something wrong with her, that there's something flawed and uncanny in her own memory, which I think is a direct uh, reflection of sense of self, because I think, you know, our memories are what we use to construct our sense of self every single day. And and I just, I was so moved and bewildered that right at that moment in my life, I could, <laughs> I could have this dialogue with somebody in a book who is experiencing some of the same things certainly on, on a much grander and fantastical level but um you know that is part of what fantasy does it shows us ourselves in these strange uncanny fantastical ways
0: there's something so universally terrifying i think about this And I have a suspicion we all feel like we could probably endure great physical pain, but I don't know about you, but that sensation of what we now call gaslighting Mm -hmm. where you cannot trust your own brain chills me. I find that absolutely terrifying when I can't get a sense of what is true in in any given situation, there's something about not having full grip on your own memory that is, I think it is just a universally terrifying feeling.
1: It is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I the The idea that we can be betrayed by our own minds and by our own bodies is something of sort of constant (laughs) disappointment to me that, that I find very disturbing and is something that I, I have tried to tackle in my own writing. Um, But yes, it is, it is very frightening. And, and, and I think even more so when you're in an unstable environment as bitter blue is, as I have often felt um, certainly my, childhood was punctuated with moments of extreme instability um where you know you you have a sense that you can't trust yourself but also that you can't entirely trust the people around you that there's a question of why are they acting the way they're acting and not being able to put your finger on what's wrong about it um and i i mean it's such just something that she she executes it so beautifully in this book. Um, I mean, like I said, really astonishing to read. And, and something else that I think this is really, it's, it's said explicitly in the earlier books, um, and I, I think it's really only hinted at here, but a particular facet of her father's ability was that if somebody repeated something that he said that those words themselves out of his mouth out of his presence also carried that same power to alter reality that somebody could be oh. in his kingdom and travel halfway across the world and speak a lie that he has spoken and it will forever alter the person who hears it which i mean it could, i'm i'm getting chills right now thinking about this just the power that words have and the power specifically that the words of abusers have and and how they just they really do they're able to change the reality of everybody that those words come in contact with it, it's a really fascinating portrait of abuse and trauma for so many nuanced reasons
0: did did you have a better sense of who she could trust given that you had read the first book but not the second because that was the part that i found very chilling, was all of the advisors of her father that she inherited. But it yeah. down to everyone, like people, when she snuck out, and that's not a spoiler, she sneaks out pretty early yes. on in the book. <laughs> um, And even then I was thinking, I, I don't know that you can trust this person, <laughs> any yeah. of these people. Did you have a better sense um of who she could trust, given that you had read the first book?
1: Well, I think that in itself, this book expects us to believe in Katza, believe in Poe, believe in Gidden, believe in Helda. Um, and those are all people that we know from the first book. So I, mm. I did have experience with those characters and I did suspect that I, I had no reason to think that she couldn't trust them. But I also think as a standalone I think that they're clearly positioned as removed from Lex reign and therefore uh, not involved in the, in in what she calls like the crackpots, like all of the advisors and the people lying to her. Some things do make sense that there is a reason for the lies and um, and the continued lies on the part of her advisors. And those reasons have to do with their own pain and shame at what they experienced. Um, You know, are those good reasons? Are they good enough to forgive them? I think that's something everybody has to contend with for themselves, but um, they have, they have those reasons, which are not things that Katza Poe get in those other people. They didn't experience that not being in the kingdom at the time. So I think, I think, I think and I think it's safe to say that any reader coming into this, I wouldn't say that you have to read the earlier books. I think that what you need is there in the in this book,
0: yes, yeah, I'm just sort of uh focusing on the way it's a very different experience because it is it my the book that I have specifically says that it's a standalone mm-hmm. um so you definitely can go into it without reading the others. I just thought it was a fascinating experience to have absolutely no sense of who was reliable. And I didn't trust anybody at the beginning. Every new character, I thought, nope, nope. And that, I guess, reflects a lot more on my mistrustful nature, most likely.
1: (laughs) Well, when I first read Bitter Blue, this is one of the things that I alluded to before. I was with Bitter Blue puzzling through these bizarre choices that her father had made to rename the river to build these bizarre structures these bridges um, doing these gruesome medical tests as he puts them on people and animals that um, are are so cruel and disgusting uh, to the point of just being completely incomprehensible. Um, And so that was how I experienced it the first time I read it. I still find them cruel and disgusting, of course, but having read the second book, you start to see, ah this is this is an insane, sadistic person with uh, with an obsession, with an obsession with recreating the world exactly how he wants it to be, and it's not enough for him that he can just say lies and have them believed. He also has to get his hands in there and break things and break people and physically remake the world. It is quite disturbing, isn't it? <laughs> now i really
0: want to read that one because i think the other thing she does really well is the seed of the the monster is always a little bit appealing who wouldn't i did have moments where i went who wouldn't love that power to be able to make whatever we say true and of course in this book it's already morphed into monstrosity now I really want to read the second one.
1: Yeah, the second book, I highly recommend it. You should read it. It's just another remarkable book from another from a remarkable writer. So tell me, what are you reading right now? What are you into these? Well, I've always got a few things going. So um while I walk the dog in the evening, I'm listening to One Last Stop, which is Casey McQuiston's new book. Oh yeah. And is that good on audio? It's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> it it's It's delightful. Um, (laughs) I, every now and then, have been turning to Upstream by Mary Oliver. It's one of her many beautiful essay collections. Or some of them feel like prose poems to me. But um, yeah, just meditation. Do you listen to that on audio? No, I've been reading it. But um, what an idea. Maybe I'll get it on audio so I have something for the dog walking once I finish One Last Stop.
0: Uh, Yeah, how... How does poetry translate to audio? Do you think it works well in that format? I've never tried that.
1: I don't know. I I mean, there are, there's obviously spoken word, um, mm-hmm. but then there are, there are poems and there is verse that is written that is always meant to be read aloud. And I, I guess you could argue that all poems are meant to be read out loud, but do I want necessarily somebody reading them to me in my Mm -hmm. ear, one after the other. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it before. I I really have never reached for poetry on audiobook. I'll have to give it a try so I can decide what I think about it.
0: Yeah, I've never thought about it either. And my first, my gut reaction is, well, it would have to be the author reading it, right? You can't hire an actor.
1: Although I have been to a lot of really bad poetry readings. Yes. (laughs) So, so. I might not be convinced that the author is always the best person to read the work, but maybe, maybe certainly if the author has a specific vision, then, then he or she is the best person to read it. But gosh, I don't know. I always think, I I always think that with a poem, all the direction that you need to read it out loud should be embedded in the line. I had, I took a, I took a class on Shakespeare's comedies and romances my freshman year of college, and something that my professor was really interested in was the fact that Shakespeare used almost no stage direction. It may be um, they exit, he enters... I mean, there's the very famous "Exit Pursued by a Bear," of course. Yeah. But uh, my professor <laughs> contended, my professor contended that, from a stagecraft standpoint, that the the direction and the appropriate readings of the lines and the staging could all be intuited from just the language itself. Mm. And and I think I I think the same applies to poetry that everything that you need to know how it ought to be read should really be right there in the language, in the line breaks, if it's lineated in um, the rhythm. Bad writing to me is
0: not trusting the reader to be able to figure it out. Yeah. Which is something I really like about this book because I wasn't spoon fed and um, she trusted me a lot with, the backstory
1: that I didn't fully get, but it was still made for a great read. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it comes back to this idea of there being a contract between writer and reader. That to, to disrespect that contract is sort of like a like a very profound kind of disrespect. Yes. <laughs> and and I also love that about this book, that the that there's a trust there, but there's also there's an experience of decentering as you read it, which I think is appropriate to the material. Um, and you you come around in the end, I think. You've you you're recentered without it having to be a pat ending, yes. which is, I mean, it's incredible that she can do that.
0: Yeah. So I interrupted the books that you are in the middle of.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I listed two. Um Ah, something that I haven't had a chance to pick up in a while, but I'm eager to get back to is, um, Liberty by Caitlin Greenridge, I think.
0: I have it right there. Oh, I did, open, so I have, I haven't, opened it, it. I haven't opened, opened it yet. You haven't opened it yet in the library.
1: Well, it's great. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's really fantastic. So it's about, um, a young woman living with her mother, who's a female black doctor. And so it starts off. Before the Civil War, the Civil War happens, and now we're sort of following um, Liberty as she's growing up and figuring out what her identity is going to be as a Black woman, as a freed Black woman, as the daughter of a doctor, a female doctor, the only female doctor that she knows. Um, It seems to me that she's about to chart her own path, which I'm very excited to see.
0: Will you tell my listeners where they can find you and your work?
1: Yes. So you can visit me online at my website, which is alineglennmore.net. It was .com until I got pregnant, had a baby, and let everything lapse, and somebody (laughs) else bought up the domain name alineglennmore.com.
0: That cannot possibly be a common name. What happened?
1: (sighs) I don't know I assumed that they wanted me to buy it back from them so I tried to but nobody ever responded so I, I now uh, I'm aline Glenmore.net rude <laughs> so rude um, yeah so you can check out any recently published or forthcoming work there I'm on Instagram Eileen Glenmore. And yes, I would love, if anybody wants to connect, I I am there on the internet waiting for you.
0: Well, Eileen, this has been a delight talking to you. I'm so glad you joined me and I hope you'll come back anytime you have a book you want to discuss because this has really been fun. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, Bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie wrote a book. Remember, I'm looking for guests from all walks of life to tell me about books from all genres. If you have a book you want to talk about, go to juliewroteabook.com and click on the button that says, Be a Guest on the Best Book Ever. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.